This is E-Impulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 13, Last Stand in Santa Rosa. Happy holidays, everyone. We are super excited to end our first year of E-Impulse. So thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting us. You know, we were recently honored to win the Platinum Award in Best Rich Media in the E-Healthcare Leadership Awards, which was really pretty cool for us. It was awesome. (laughs) And we are particularly excited about January because to celebrate our one year of podcasting, we are going to start out with a special bonus episode. It's going to be awesome. So stay tuned for that. But today, we are going to tell the story of the 2017 Santa Rosa fires from the perspective of three emergency physicians who experienced it. You know, Sarah, this story is so intense. You know, I will tell you, I cried when Josh told his story. You know, we have recorded so many stories, stories about victims who were beaten within an inch of their life. The story of a mom who walked through motel rooms looking for her son's dead body. But in a way, this story is closer to home because I can see myself in the middle of a shift in the middle of a disaster, right? Because that's what I've been trained for. But when I look at that scenario, the one thing that bugs me is, what about my family? What's my obligation to my family? And not only is this scenario close to home because it happened to another emergency medicine physician, But it's close to home because this story happened in Santa Rosa, and Santa Rosa is literally home to my family. They were evacuated during this very fire, and they all ended up at our home as the safe place. This story is close to home on many levels, which is probably why it elicited such a strong emotional response from me. Yeah, and it might bring out emotions in you as well. Northern California is still picking up the pieces of our most recent fires. And fires and disasters have become a more regular occurrence for us. So we really wanted to address this issue together, because if you haven't thought about what you would do personally or professionally during a disaster, you need to. Yeah, that's for sure. To learn about disaster preparedness, three Kaiser Santa Rosa emergency medicine physicians, Susie, Josh, and Dane, will tell about the day before, then the day of, and the days that followed the fires in Santa Rosa, California. They tell such a powerful story. We're going to let them do most of the talking. So you will hear Dr. Josh Weil, a Kaiser Emergency Medicine physician and assistant physician-in-chief for hospital operations, who's an alumnus of the UC Davis EM residency. And then you'll hear from Dr. Susie Fitzgerald, who also works at Kaiser Santa Rosa Emergency Department. And she is also the Kaiser Permanente Northern California Regional Emergency Management Drill and Training Director, among one of her many titles. And finally, we're going to hear from Dr. Dane Stevenson, who is also an emergency physician at Kaiser. He's a recent graduate of our UC Davis Emergency Medicine Residency Program and the Geriatric Fellowship. And he will tell us about the aftermath. Our story begins with Josh. The way the day really unfolds starts the day before, right? Technically, the fire hit us Monday morning, October 9th, but October 8th, I remember well because it was a particularly hot day. And my usual practice is to try and take a nap the afternoon before I go into a night shift. And my wife and daughter had actually gone out for the day, leaving me at home with a quiet day, which is a little unusual for my life. 
and actually spent a couple of hours. Uh, we had have some goats, um, and they have a pen on our on our property, and so I was fixing that up, and it was really hot. I remember struggling with the heat, and uh, so I took a break, and we had this little outbuilding, and keep things like yearbooks and old photos in it. And so it was just, I mean, looking back and realizing that I spent that afternoon reminiscing, thinking about my old friends, my old times, and I'm a sentimental guy, and I was looking through those things, never quite realizing that that would be the last time that I would look at those things. But that afternoon, I did try to go down for a nap, and it was just really hot, and um, the power kept going on and off in the winds, especially in the evening, and so I wasn't getting very good AC, and so it was getting hot and stuffy, and so I wasn't sleeping well. I think I woke up around uh, 8.30 or 9, and it was very smoky, and so I kind of wandered out, and my wife was up. We walked around the property, it was just smoky, and it's Northern California in October, and there's a forest fire somewhere. It could be up in Oregon, and smoke blows down, so I didn't give too much thought to it. And around 10.30, I rolled down to work, which is a little bit early. I usually roll down for my shift a few minutes before 11, but I got there early, and it was really smoky down in the hospital. So I started my shift, and it was already feeling like a pretty busy Sunday night, busier than usual, and we were already getting people coming in with complaints around smoke, and, and uh, even a couple people who, as the night progressed, kind of rolled in and, and said that um, they were, uh, had been escaping flames or fire. So now I knew something was going on nearby. And it still didn't quite click. I was just in my mind, okay, it's going to be a busy Sunday night, and I just have to deal with that. But at some point around then, every time the paramedics come through, you hear all the activity on the radios of brush fire here and a, and a structure fire there. And one of the firefighters said to me, uh, every fire asset in the county is deployed right now. And that was the first time I went, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> something's going on out there. And that was the first time the hair really stood up on the back of my neck. So things were definitely getting busy, and we were starting to talk by around 12.30 about maybe this was becoming a surge event, and we need to start thinking about more help. And around 1 o'clock, I heard another one of those radio calls with a structure fire that I thought, that's a couple miles from my house. And so I pulled up Google, Google Maps, and sure enough, it looked about three miles from where my house is. And so I called my wife at 1 a.m., and I said, you know, it's a little bit weird out there. Why don't you just get some stuff ready just in case? Why don't you grab the wedding albums and the computers and throw them in the car? And she actually had not been sleeping well. She often doesn't sleep well when I'm not there anyways. And then it was hot and the lights were coming on and off and she was hearing sirens in the distance. So she was actually appreciative of getting that call. So she went outside and she moved one of our cars closer to the house and she actually went into the shed and grabbed the cat carrier. But the mistake she made was she thought, ah, I don't want to stress out the cat. Nothing's going to happen tonight. And she didn't put the cat into the cat carrier. So that was, that was one unfortunate mistake. And then she walked inside and she grabbed uh, the wedding albums and the computers and came outside. And now she could actually see a glow coming over the hill. And she thought, oh, this is real. And um, so she ran back inside and she woke up my daughters and grabbed a couple of things, grabbed one of the dogs, called the neighbor. And actually the neighbor mentioned that she had gotten an evacuation call, which we hadn't. And um, so she ran outside with the dog and my daughter. And now she could see flames starting to move down the hill. And so she ran back inside, grabbed the other dog. And now there were embers and it was really starting to approach the house. And she told my daughter, I got to run inside and try and find the cat. And so she ran inside and the power was out and the, you know, her eyes were, her retinas were just red with the fire. And she searched for a few minutes and couldn't find the cat. And she ran back out. It was around that time. So now it's about 1.15. I mean, 15 minutes, only 15 minutes since I had called her, 15 minutes and she walked outside and it was just, oh, it's a little smoky. Now they're in that situation, and my neighbor calls me on my personal cell phone, not realizing that I'm at work. And I'm actually in a patient's room, going over her x-ray, showing her how she didn't have a break in her ankle. I 
turns out she had a break in her foot, which I missed, but I guess she, it turned, I, someone told me she posted on Facebook some very nice things about me. So I guess she forgave me under the circumstances. So my neighbor calls me and he's just shouting, get out, get out, get out. And he doesn't realize that I'm at work. And I said, Mike, I got to go. I hung up. I ran out of the room and I called my wife's cell phone. It was my daughter, Sophie, my 16-year-old daughter, 15 at the time, who answered my wife's cell phone. And she is just screaming. That's all she can do is scream. And I don't know what's going on at that time. And I know that the fire is right upon them and she's screaming. And I'm telling her, just breathe, slow down. I'm trying to get control of what's going on. Uh, And I can hear my wife in the background. We're driving, we're driving, we're driving. And they were literally driving through, you know, walls of fire and burning branches falling in front of them. We live up on this hill and there's only one road out. And uh, they hit the bottom of the hill. And she said, okay, we're out, we're out. And she describes it there. It was just Armageddon. I mean, that's where the fire and police were. And they were just pulling people out of the houses. And the houses were erupting in flames. And people were in their underpants and whatever they had. And I said, just come to Kaiser. Just come to Kaiser. So they were there by 1.30. And uh, so then I kind of know, okay, they're, they're here. They're safe. And now the phones are starting to ring. So um, Judy Coffey, who is the area manager, senior vice president for Kaiser uh, Marin Sonoma, had been getting calls. She was the administrator on call. And she called me and said, she said, Josh, what's going on at the hospital? And I said, Judy, I think my house just burned down. I don't know. And she said, okay, I, you know, it sounds like it's time for us to open up the command center. Judy's house was burning down within the next 15 minutes or so of that. Around that time, Susie called me. I woke up around one in the morning to a text on my work phone that said, any providers available, please come into the ED to help with fire search. And I was sound asleep. Took me a little bit to sort out the details and and which ED. I still get pages from a couple other yeah. EDs that I that I um, used to work at. And I uh, woke up enough to realize, oh, I'll look on the track board. I'll see what's going on. So I logged onto my computer and I saw Josh was working. So I just called Josh and and I said, you know, what's going on? What do you need? And he said, I don't know what I need. Um, I think my house just burned down and, you know, Claire and Sophie um, barely got out through a wall of flames. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to come in. (laughs) It seems like the right thing to do. Um, It still took me a little bit to get um, things squared away. My partner, Fred, had been up already, but just needed to throw a few things that I was most interested in, in retaining if something were to happen and we had to evacuate. So I threw those together. I threw some stuff together for our dog, woke my mom up and threw scrubs on and then came in. Took me a while to get to the hospital. Normally, it's about a 20-minute drive. I actually don't know exactly how long it took because I wasn't really paying attention to that element, but I do know I had to back up, take a few different routes. I activated our regional command center on the way in and woke up that person, of course, and finally made it to 101, got to our exit and had to actually get through a roadblock got to the hospital. I parked. What I can tell you is I noticed it was quite smoky. Um, I can tell you, by the way, on the way in, I noticed it was quite smoky and there was an orange glow in the air. I also noticed that there were very few people going the direction I was going. (laughs) Everybody was going the other direction. Um, Walked into the emergency department and um, (laughs) very smoky, very hectic. And I said, hey, are you guys okay? (laughs) Not surprisingly, the answer was no, we need to get out of here. By that time, the command center was getting opened up and we had actually already called. We were still at this point, from the hospital perspective, we're still thinking this is going to be a surge event. And uh, so by a little after two, Kirk Pappas, who was our physician in chief, his house had burned down. He escaped through flames. He was there and more physicians were coming in to help. And someone called and said, Josh, we need you in the command center. So that's when I came into the command center and uh, we were still kind of working operations. And fire was on scene, law enforcement was on scene. 
a little after three, one of the firefighters came in and said, we're making a last stand. And they were referring to, there's this trailer park just north of our property here called Journey's End. The fire had already burned through 90% of it, but there were two last rows of trailers there and there's a little dry creek bed. And they were going to use that line to try and hold off the fire from our campus. When they said that, I said, okay, time to evacuate. And they actually said, uh, well, we're actually not advising that. We're advising shelter in place. And I have since learned from the fire captain that night that he had been directed from his superiors to not let Kaiser evacuate. They were thinking that that was going to be a situation that they didn't want to try to have to manage. But when they said, you know, we're not recommending that, but it's your choice, I turned and I looked at uh, Dr. Pappas and Atreti Coffee, and we all kind of just nodded and said, okay, time to go. And in my mind, what I was thinking was that it's at least a semi-controlled situation right now, that we still have time, we still have the ability. And that what I don't want is for suddenly someone to say the hostel's burning down from the top floor and then trying to evacuate. That could have been a true disaster. So we made that decision and everything just kind of clicked. I mean, it was fairly incredible what, how everyone pulled together and kind of just did, did what they had to do. And people were coming up with ideas on the fly. Like one of my senior nurses in the emergency department came up to me and said, hey, Josh, I was just at a conference and they talked about evacuating patients in private vehicles. What do you think? And I said, great, go for it. So a couple of people grabbed their cars and they threw a couple of patients. I think a lot of them were happy to have an excuse to leave the facility, to get into their cars <laughs> and drive away. We turned out not to have some of the equipment that would have made sense in terms of tracking patients. And uh, one of my physicians said, hey, why don't we just use my cell phone? I'll just take a photo of everyone's wristbands so we can track people that way. So all these kinds of ideas happened in, uh, organically in the moment based on people's experience and just kind of thought process. But there were a lot of things that we were trying to manage, The you know, just getting the patients down, staging them, kind of thinking through. Again, Susie was on scene and, and she has a lot of experience in disaster management. We have a very detailed evacuation plan. It's a fabulous plan. The value in that plan turned out to not be the physical paper copy, but the planning that went into it, the thought that went into it. And then planning process that went into it, but not the plan itself. The plan itself was, we, we wouldn't have even been able to right, read who, it. Who has time to pull out, a, <laughs> pull out a binder and start looking through the pages? You just don't have Really time hard to, to read. Really hard to read. There was a lot, of, uh, pro, you know, a lot of problem solving, a lot of things that were happening in the moment to try and figure out how to get patients out. You always talk about evacuation as first the ambulatory, then uh, the wheelchair, then the bed bound, um, and then the ICU patients that you want to, you know, do the most good for the most, the most patients. But that being said, what, what happened organically is that it all happened in parallel. Because the people that can walk, frankly, they were able to look out the window and see the flames. <laughs> and there were some folks that, that just picked up and left. The rest of the folks, they, it was pretty easy to gather the ambulatory patients, get them to go downstairs. Wheelchair patients were pretty easy. Meanwhile, the ICU patients, you know, it's not like your ICU team is going to leave their ICU patients and come help you with a patient who is there, you know, and maybe is non-ambulatory but not particularly sick. They're going to stay with their patient. And so they might as well be working on that element. And they might as well be getting them ready uh, to transfer. We were fortunate. We only had a couple of ICU patients. We had one um, intermediate care uh, nursery uh, baby that was fairly sick. Um, other than that, we had a pretty low critical care census. So what we learned and what happened organically that night is that it happened in parallel with the care teams for those uh, patients taking care of the basic needs of the evacuation and then a kind of an overall coordination. So like they brought the little 
tiny one down into the hospital lobby where we staged everyone. And then we prioritized them to get them out because the little one was having trouble with the smoke. As you might have, I mean, he's like hours old. Somewhere around, I don't even know what, what time, maybe 4, 4.30, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and it was a cop. And he, he had a whole bunch of cops behind him and he said, we're here to help you evacuate. And I was like, oh, okay, hang on. And we were doing some problem solving of something. And I don't know how much time passed. They tapped me on the shoulder again. They said, we're here to help you evacuate. That got my attention the second time. And I said, what are you saying? And, and I said, are you saying we need to step it up? And, and, and they said, yes. This is where we started um, in earnest with the bedbound patients. And we did the same thing on the third floor. I went to the fourth floor um, with KT Lopez, one of our foot and ankle surgeons and our APIC for surgery here. He's actually the one who had the innovative idea to do the tracking with the phones later on. We went to that fourth floor, and that was the first time I noticed the flames as I was, as I was you know, going around to rooms, looked out the window and looked across and saw, oh, wow, that's quite close. That's quite big. And for a moment had a thought of this could be very dangerous, but as fast as it came, it went away because we just kept doing what we were doing. Someone turned to me and said, what do you think about the elevators? And we had already switched over to generators. So at that point, I felt comfortable knowing that we were, had a which should be a stable you know, energy source, but these are all the things that you're going through. We were fortunate that we were able to use the elevators. Would have been a lot longer process had we um, had to use just the stairs because we had a fair number of patients that did require the elevator. Once we got them downstairs, I remembered from the uh, review of the Aurora, Colorado event, that horrible shooting at the Batman movie, one of the things they learned um, and one of the things they did when they managed those patients is they assigned one person to every patient. Um, it, in some cases, was an EVS worker. In some cases, it was an ophthalmology resident. But they paired every patient with a person who could you know, keep eyes on the patient, advocate for the patient, communicate with the patient, and frankly, move the patient if they're in a gurney. Once we got everyone downstairs, we did that. And we had enough clinical providers circulating that it was something that we were able to keep eyes on and give input if, you know, for example, it was a non-clinical person. I think one of the challenges was um, to realize that Sutter was closer to the path of the fire. And so they began their evacuation at 245. They were ordered to evacuate. And so the majority of the ambulance resources were going to support that evacuation. Of course, they're trying to get resources in, but this isn't just one fire. Um, if you check one of the, the maps, there's maps that show how the 911 calls popped up all across the county. I mean, it was extraordinary. In the end, they handled over 780 911, very urgent, very real 911 calls in less than 24 hours. And it was incredibly challenging. They had three major fires burning, windy things still starting, embers going a mile ahead of the flames. And that's how it spread so quickly. Crazy situation. The county had provided public city buses. I had directed them to take the patients down to Kaiser San Rafael primarily, and they didn't want to take the buses out of the county because they looked at that as an asset that the county may need for moving people. And they wanted to take them to an evacuation center that was being set up at the Veterans Hall. But I said, these are not just evacuees. These are patients. They need medical care. And it took some back and forth, but we were able to convince them ultimately to take those, those patients down. Kaiser San Rafael did an amazing job. I mean, that's a hospital that typically has a, a hospital census of around 50. And we, we sent them uh, close to 80 patients. There's a, 86. Yeah, 86. The, the, the funny story was, so yeah. my, my peer, uh, assistant physician chief for hospital operations at San Rafael, gave her a call to say, hey, you know, we're, we're sending you some patients. And Heads she, up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she said, well, how many? And I said, uh, 
all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they did a remarkable job getting the patients down there, staging them, getting through their ED, getting them taken care of. We sent physicians and nurses down there to help in that role, patient care coordinators. We sent our, you know, over the next couple of days and weeks particularly, we sent, sent teams down there to help with those patients, but it was really a remarkable job that they did down there. It's funny because at the time when I made the decision to evacuate, I mean, all right, I, I, I think I, I said it with authority because that's my role to do it. But in the back of my head, I was like, oh man, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. <laughs> and and uh, regional um, command center was open. And as soon as I told them, they totally supported it. And by the time we got everyone out, you know, in less than three hours, we had no water pressure. We had no medical gases. The, ho- the hospital was completely inundated with smoke. And it was clearly the right decision. But in the moment, you know, when you're making that decision and you're thinking, I'm, it's a big deal to evacuate a hospital. So as Josh and Susie's night of craziness and evacuation was coming to a close, Dane's day was just starting. I was working at the 6 a.m. shift that, that day. There was no internet at the house. The cell service was really spotty, and I was pretty disconnected from the world. For me, I was kind of driving into the mix. And again, this was, this was my fifth day on the job, so I didn't want to be late for work. And, and, uh, and so I was determined to get to work, and uh, all the traffic was leaving the city. And here I am, the only person driving on the highway into the city, diverted off the freeway, told by fire and, and police personnel. You can't go any further. There's a fire. Still dedicated to get to work and nearly on an empty tank of gas too, uh, to add an extra layer of stress. I actually had to use my hospital badge and say, hey, listen, I got to get to the hospital. But I was able to convince them and they said, well, it proceed at your own risk. So I'm driving underneath fire hoses from fire trucks, putting out structure fires. I mean, it was surreal. The thick smoke as the sun rose, everything was Everything was hazy. Everything was orange. There was people uh, on bikes with bandanas carrying other bikes and other boxes on their backs, you know, looters. Everything was deserted. Everything was closed. There was no power. It was just kind of a free-for-all, and it felt very unusual. Very heavy smoke smell um, and you know, just ash uh, raining down. You can imagine just the apocalyptic nature, kind of the end days feel to it. Um, everything was quiet. Uh, which was very unusual too. There was hardly any traffic on the sides of the road, just lines of charred, blackened cars, essentially house graveyards. There was like, you know, communities that were gone, but the chimneys, which were all brick, didn't burn. So you just have essentially a tombstone of a chimney for every house. Got to the hospital and uh, it, it just, you know, just around 6 a.m. and you could see the hills on fire um, and the fire came right up to the edge of the hospital. And uh, I mean, it was wild. Walked in the door. And it was just kind of, it wasn't chaos, it was organized, but they said, we just evacuated our last patient. So the evacuation process had basically finished right as I arrived. You know, at that point, with all the patients gone, it was kind of, well, what do we do next? Some of us were kind of locked into the city at that point. I couldn't even get out uh, because of how congested it was. And so a lot of our resources then were used to kind of divert to where the patients were going. Some were being transferred to other hospitals, but going to shelters and where these patients were ending up kind of as these transient places until they could kind of be shuttled to other hospitals or other clinics or wherever they needed to go. Um, but the hospital, very eerie, you know, empty essentially at that point. And it was, it was an unusual experience for sure. Um, right off the bat, we um, kind of filled up a couple of pickup trucks. You know, this is about an hour after we finished evacuating, knowing that at least 30 patients would, went straight to a, a shelter, which was about a mile away. That was one of the only um, actual 
docs who made it in, it was an early shift and there was only to be two of us at that time and everyone else had kind of fled. Um, I just grabbed three garbage bags and said, okay, what do I think is going to be the problem here? And I kind of was thinking physical injuries more than anything. So I grabbed multiple suture kits and, you know, the necessary anesthetics if we were going to be dealing with lacerations or abrasions or, and some splinting materials as well in case people had, you know, joint injuries or bone injuries. Um, and it wasn't until I got to the shelter with this materials and saw what was going on and I was able to assess, okay, there's a lot of people here who seemingly are short of breath. So I went back to the hospital and said, we need, we need stuff to be prepared for smoke inhalation because the smoke was, you know, awful, just like it's been um, with the more recent fires. Uh, and so there was a lot of respiratory issues and people fled without their nebulizers and without their inhalers. So then it was kind of getting supportive stuff for, for fire and smoke, which was, you know, inhalers, eye drops cough drops uh, and things like that. And so it was a, a pretty dynamic process, but fortunately the shelters were relatively close to the hospital and the hospital was really good about saying, take what you need to take. That first day was a little bit of pandemonium. There was people sitting in shelters with IV poles still on a drip because they got rushed out of the hospital and they were still waiting to figure out where do we go next from here. And those people found a new hospital home pretty quickly. The shelters became essentially you know, makeshift, almost like a nursing facility, right? I mean, you've got people who don't need heavy medical care, but they needed something. Um, for example, patients whose caregivers fled, and now you've got these elderly patients who have nothing as far as a caregiver, they would come there. People who had ventilators who didn't know how to do their own ventilators would have to come and we would manage those. And a lot of uh, elderly people, some who were, you know, kind of agitated with, you know, mild or moderate dementia, and now they're in a whole new environment with the, you know, the stress of the fire. That whole week, there was more evacuations. The fire, as you, if you remember, was kept going. Um, the, the, big, the big bad stuff happened early on, but the, but the uh, fire really caused a lot of evacuations for many people for five or six days. So there was a lot of displaced people, and those who had nowhere else to go would come to the shelter. So it was, it was up and down. And we actually ended up, because our hospital was closed at that point, staffed the shelters 24 hours a day, usually with a couple of docs, usually ER docs or family practice docs. And they had us kind of doing it in shifts. And, uh, you know, the nights I ended up doing a couple of nights was an interesting experience because you'd show up and they'd say, okay, well, this person over here is on a ventilator and, and this one's about to sundown and this one's got black stools, but their vital signs are okay. So we're just going to see how they do you know, and you know, this person we know has a low potassium, but they're too stressed to eat. And so it was just very it was kind of a renegade kind of medicine to some extent. And we would see people come in from the community with complaints. And you had to kind of make a decision in the shelters. Can we just house them here versus do we need to send them to the only open emergency room nearby and go from there? And especially at night, we're, just, we're really just trying to stay afloat until the sun rises so that we can take advantage of whatever daytime resources we'll have. If you walk around um, these, these shelters and people would see that you're in scrubs or that you have a badge that says you're a doctor, I mean, it's just... Everyone looked at you like you had all the answers, and I didn't have the answers. I just had the supplies and was able to provide some help. Wow, that was a ton of pressure. From the moment that you start a shift with fires going on around you to the moment that you hear your daughter screaming on the phone to the next moment when your family's free, but now you are evacuating a hospital and police and fire are tapping on your shoulder and then Dane breaking through firewalls to come into the emergency department shift. Man, that is a ton of pressure. 
Yeah, I can't even imagine. And what I really want to know is how do you prepare for something like this? So there's two, two preparedness. I always say, um, Josh has heard this many times, but it starts at home. Because if you're not prepared at home, you're not going to get in as quickly as you would like. And despite my being steeped in disaster preparedness all the time, practically, I was not prepared. I have my disaster kits. I have tons of water, tons of food, and et cetera. But I didn't have like a list. What I have now is a list of what is most important to me. And, you know, it would take me five minutes maybe to grab everything that I feel is most important now. I didn't have that list at that point. So I had a little bit of a process there. So I wasn't ready at home. But readiness is is things like disaster kits, both in your car, both at home. Um, it's having a disaster plan. How are you going to evacuate your home if you have to? Where are you going to reunite? How are you going to get your grandma out if she lives with you? What about your three-year-old? Um, what if the disaster happens when you're all in the community? How are you going to reunite? How are you going to find out that your kids or your dog or your partner, your wife, your husband, whatever is your, you know, whatever your family structure looks like, how are you going to check into those folks? And then once that's all squared away and you know they're safe, then, okay, if it's a big deal, you're probably going to be needed at the hospital. So do you have your ID? Because it's a lot easier to get through a roadblock. It doesn't guarantee you will get through them. Many of our folks that were coming from a different direction, simply they would not let them through because they were going through an active fire zone. But do you have your ID? Um, do you, if you show up at another hospital that where they actually don't know you, that helps tremendously with the emergency credentialing process. So things like that. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, definitely the preparedness at home. I mean, I, ha I had this beautiful disaster shed at my house where I kept it separate from the house because of the house collapses, the garage collapses. So we had a couple of days of food. I had pet food. I had, you know, I had $2,000 in cash because when the ATMs go down, you know, cash is king. And all of that was ready for the disaster that was coming, the earthquake. As it turns out, that all that stuff, including the cash, went up in smoke in, <laughs> in the fire. So- but, you know, but what do you have in your car? Do you have a couple of days of clothes? You know, because I camped out at this hospital for three days following this event. You know, fortunately, Susie's partner, Fred, went out and kind of eyeballed me and knows my size and grabbed me some, you know, some clothes and some and a toothbrush and toothpaste. But, you know, what do you have in the back of your car? Because that may be all that you have. As far as the hospital preparedness, uh, it's number one, you have to do the planning process. You have to do the brainstorming, you know, figuring out what the evacuation plan is and what the considerations are. I mean, there's a whole set of joint commission regulations that speak directly to emergency management and the environment of care. And so, of course, you need to check all of those boxes. But that's not enough. That's, that's your joint commission compliant, which is a start, but it doesn't equal true readiness. True readiness mm -hmm. comes from really socializing the plans, drilling them, um, literally walking them out, practicing. You know, we had um, several months after the fires, we had a new office building that was opening up. So before it opened, we actually grabbed it for a day and we ran evacuation drills. We used the evacuation chairs. We evacuated teddy bears. We evacuated people. We did a whole thing. And started working with our new checklist. There's no replacement for that type of training. I think the other part of real preparedness is doing some of that training under some form of pressure. You know, you're never going to, like, you don't want to put anyone in an unsafe situation. We're not going to light a building on fire to simulate having smoke in the environment and somebody's 15-year-old daughter screaming in the background. But that's the type of stress we were operating under. And so doing something to create some pressure that helps you um, wade through that and get to the part of your brain that is going to be most effective rather than the part of your brain that says, ah, which is where you go first, is really key. 
it's something that we train for in emergency medicine, what, you know, with codes. And so it's that type of thing where, where our response in these events becomes more muscle memory and less having to think it out because we might not be thinking that well. It's hard to really kind of plan ahead for something like this because, like I said, the biggest disconnect in this day and age is technology. So not having cell service, not having an internet connection, at least for me at home to start off the day, uh, made it tricky. Communicating back and forth from shelters to the hospital was a challenge, not only because the cell service was impacted, but it was also just the network was so busy with everyone else. So it was hard to get through to people. Text messages were delayed. And so and I don't have a good solution for it, but finding a, a, good, a good way to communicate in a system where it's kind of pandemonium um, is, really, is really paramount in making sure that things can get accomplished. You may be on your own at home for several days, but the other reality is you may be on your own in the hospital. I mean, it, it, just because there's, there's communities, there's local, there's county, there's state, federal resources, they are not able to immediately deploy them. And depending on the magnitude of the event, there you may be more on your own than you would have ever imagined um, or certainly ever wanted to be. And so to be prepared for that element, just because the cavalry would really like to rush in, doesn't mean they're going to be able to initially. As emergency physicians, we're equipped to deal with the unexpected. And we do everything we can in a, in a true MacGyver fashion. There's no script. Um, and so you just try and triage the problem and you try and figure out, well, what, what do we need to allocate our resources to and how do we, you know, what do we do next? The thing that's really refreshing about these experiences, if there's a silver lining, is that there's no real rules. People say, well, can we do that? And it doesn't matter. We just, we got to help people. Can we give them this medicine? It's like, yeah, we need to, we need to give them this medicine. We need to do this and that. We need to, how do we document this? We don't need to document it. They just need a bandage on their leg. We don't need to write somewhere on a post-it note that we put a bandage on their leg. It was interesting in that regard because you felt kind of free to do what needed to be done and get it done. I think the other thing is that as emergency physicians, we really know more than maybe we realize for these kinds of things. I mean, this is what we're steeped in is making decisions, being decisive, relying on, it's not just instinct, but it's training. So you have some idea about what is going to be needed for patients as you move through these scenarios so that when law enforcement says, we want to take these patients to the vet center, you, you have something to rely on and, and some instinct to go on. And I think you can, can believe in that. And that's, you know, as Susie said, you just need to flip the switch and say, now is, it took me a while to get to that point because I just kept thinking, oh, this is just a busy Sunday night. And it wasn't really clicking. Whereas if there had been an earthquake, I would have said, oh, this is a disaster. I think the last part that I um, really try to emphasize, and Josh touched on this when he was telling his story, is recognizing that indeed what is happening in front of you is what is happening in front of you. Because it's really easy to just, oh yeah, there's some smoke. It's like, okay, wait a minute, what does this mean? You know, recognizing this is a disaster event. Just like you need to recognize when it's time to start CPR. You need, you need to recognize when it's time to innovate somebody. The hardest thing is sometimes making that decision. Right. And so same thing, you've got to recognize when you're in a disaster event, make that decision and that flips that switch. And then you're just more uh, you're better poised to respond from there. In these disaster situations, emergency physicians and providers go into work mode, using our skills and training to adapt to the needs of the situation. But what is the emotional toll of an experience like this? 
I think the thing that was that was interesting for me was that I've been to many of these disaster sites internationally, and Susie's been. Susie and I were in Haiti together, and you go to those events, and it's uh, I'm going to be there for three weeks. I'm going to leave on this date. I'm going to come back on this date, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is, and I'm going to come back to my home, to my bed, to to my life. And I think what was really different about this was that, and I remember that the morning after, just walking through this this battle zone. I mean, the, the, all that was left was smoldering cars and chimneys, and it just looked like a bomb had gone off in Santa Rosa. And I remember driving around and thinking, I don't know when this is going to end. There's no end in, there's no end in sight. I, I don't know when I'll have a house again. I don't know when I'll have my bed again. And there's no definitive time when I can leave there. So that, the mental aspects of this event are very different. I think our organization did a great job of recognizing that you know, I was in the command center on day two, and they said, no, you have to come out. You need to speak with somebody right now. And your, mi- and your mind, like, I just got I to do my job. Yeah, EAP came in, and they pulled me out, and that was the first time I cried, you know, and I was like, and I needed it. I didn't know I needed it, but I needed it, you know. The EAP that Josh and Susie are referring to is Kaiser's Employee Assistance Program. That's a really important point, because that was something that comes up internationally, is that you have to make sure that that your team takes care of themselves. And, you know, if they're sick, they spell out. It doesn't do anybody any favors if uh, you, you try to, um, you know, gut it out. This is something that we learned. I actually asked for the EAP check-ins for everyone because at some point, and that's the, that's the beauty of me being directly involved, but my home wasn't impacted. So I wasn't dealing with the same level of grief and shock and loss that that the people sitting next to me were. And so I had a little bit of an ability to pull back and say, okay, we need to make sure that we're okay. One of the things that we learned in looking back at things is that we did a fabulous job. We weren't quite as okay. And I mean this just as an as an organization, quite as okay as we thought we were. And um, we ultimately had outside help come in. I would recommend thinking about, hey, would that be beneficial? Because we know what to do. It doesn't mean we should do it at some point. It's reasonable to step back, take a break, and let somebody take the helm for a bit who's got a different energy and a different involvement. The Santa Rosa fires occurred over a year ago. We asked all three physicians how this still impacts them now. When I think about that morning, um, and when I do smell smoke still, it's, it's almost like a PTSD response. It's certainly not to that degree, but... If I smell smoke environmentally, I, I mean, I immediately think back to that morning and a little layer of stress, as I said before, where I was running out of gas in the, that morning and I thought, am I going to run out of gas in the middle of a road where I'm going to be on foot running from fire? It just changes the way you think about fire. And, and for me, that's, it's just viscerally changed how my emotional and physical response to that. Well, I mean, it's ongoing for me. So we're in the process of rebuilding our house and we don't even have foundation all the way in. So it's more than a year later. I still have uh, two of my kids are out of the house, have been in Coffin College, but my youngest is still at home and she really wants to be back in her house before her senior year in high school, which is next year. So I have that kind of stress on me. As I don't think it's going to happen based on how slowly things are going. It was unsettling for me in a lot of ways because I feel like my anchor was just gone. All my history, all my photos, anything that kind of my yearbooks, all those things that represent my 50, now 54 years of history are, you know, gone. Now families come through and found old photos. And, you know, I had a trunk of old photos. That's my other piece of, to advise people is, you know, put it on the cloud. I had a trunk of old photos that was, I'm going to scan these one day as I'm going to get them in. I mean, they were sitting in my garage. They're all, they're all gone, you know. Uh, all the 
the love letters that you write to your spouse, all the little mementos of your kids, those things are, are gone. And so that remains difficult for me and sad uh, at times. But it's also made me think a little bit differently about how I live my life. I think for the last couple of years, I've let work absorb me and I got out of shape and I kind of let friendships or important relationships go to the wayside a little bit. And I think I have um, redirected some of my energy around those things, about making time in my life for exercise and for things that are important to me and the people that are important to me. So I think uh, it was a little bit of a wake-up call. Um, even right now, my wife and I are talking about an opportunity. We have to take a trip in January and I'm contemplating the conflict at work. But as she pointed out, you know, we think we'll have plenty of Januarys to come, but we don't know for sure. You just don't know. So I think I, I take a little bit different perspective to life. I'm edgy. When it's windy or it's dry, I am edgy. I am unsettled. Fred is unsettled, my partner. You know, I have that list of what would I grab if I needed to grab it. When I had to trade in my car because the lease was up, I got a Subaru Outback that now will fit more things and is in all-wheel drive. As far as like friendships and so on, what it's done for me is help me get a really good sense of who are the folks that are really there for you and who always has your back. I look at Josh when I say that because we've been friends for a long time. And I think this has definitely strengthened our friendship, our family friendship. In some ways, it's made everybody a lot stronger. There's that R word, the resilience word. But it's also lowered everyone's threshold for believing that something bad could be happening. I think that extends, and this is anecdotally, but I think that extends possibly to physical symptoms. I feel like everyone in our community, there is a decreased threshold for believing something horrible could be happening. And that extends not just for, is it windy? Do I smell smoke? Is somebody barbecuing? But it extends to, oh, what's going on in my chest? You know, what am I feeling? Is this, wait, maybe it really could be catastrophic. Pulse check. Be prepared personally. When Josh knew his family was okay, then he was free to do his job in the ED, and then he could compartmentalize. So create a disaster plan with your family, what to grab if you have five minutes, where you will meet if there's an evacuation. Be prepared professionally. Ask what your hospital's disaster plan is and know it so you can be a part of the solution. Drill it down to the very basics. Like Susie said, you can be Jayco ready, but that doesn't mean you're disaster ready. Ask your disaster coordinator to drill if you're not already doing that. And when the major disaster has passed, that doesn't mean the work is over. We have to be flexible and willing to help out however we can in the shelters and in the clinics, just like Dane. The issues after were not injury-related, but rather respiratory and acute on chronic needs. We have many people who no longer have their meds and other resources just like we saw in Butte County shelters in our last heartbeat. But wait, don't leave. There's an epilogue to this story you're not going to want to miss. Stay tuned. Many of us chose to go into emergency medicine because we thrive with emergencies. We see ourselves running towards emergencies instead of running away from them. So that vision of Dane and Susie driving into the fires when everyone else was driving out really resonates with me. But the part in this story that scares me is Josh's part. Being on a shift and receiving that phone call that your house is burning down and calling your daughter and hearing only screams in the background, not knowing if she's okay, having a panic attack or taking her last breaths. Oh man, while being on a shift, not being able to take care of your family really scares me a lot. But I feel a little bit better discussing these topics and it's made me personally get prepared. 
We've discussed what we would do and how so that I can focus on work if I need to. We hope that you too will go home and have that conversation with your family. Have that conversation with your department so you can be prepared if that last stand comes to your department. So let's continue the conversation on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at Podcast. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and now Spotify. And I'd like to ask you to please rate us. It helps others discover us so we can reach more people. Speaking of reaching other people, we have another conference coming up. It's called the UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference. It's at Tahoe at the Ritz-Carlton, March 4th through 8th. Find out more in our show notes. Thank you to our department. I'd work with any of you in a disaster, but let's not, huh? (laughs) Thank you to OM Audio Productions. If there's ever a disaster, forget the stuff. Grab the kids in a mic. And thank you to our listeners. We have some compelling photos that the providers took that night. You are not going to want to miss them. They definitely add to the story. And you can see them at ucdavisem.com. And now for some final words from Josh. Uh, I mentioned that I had, uh, you know, goats. And my wife basically looked at the goats as she drove down the hill and she didn't, she couldn't stop and do anything. And so um, the first day after the fire, I tried to get up to the property, but there were some down power lines. I didn't know if they were live or not. And I decided not to risk driving over them. But the day after that, I decided it was time for me to go up and see, you know, somehow was there miraculously had my house survived. And um, I got my buddy, Marcus, who's a retired cop and has a badge. And I had my, my hospital badge, which we, we flashed a couple of roadblocks and got through. And uh, I live up this drive and there's uh, three homes. And the first house at the bottom is my neighbor, Bob's. And somehow Bob's house survived. In this, in this my neighborhood, there are some 1,500 houses and every one of them is obliterated, but Bob's is still standing there for who knows what reason. But so, and you have to go around this corner. So for 30 seconds or so in my mind, I'm thinking maybe somehow my house survived. And um, we go around the corner and then there's my, you know, the smoldering rubble of my house. And um, and I'm up there with Marcus and I'm looking for the cat and I'm crying. And, and then all of a sudden I hear this, ah, ah. and I look behind me and somehow my goats had survived. And, you know, the only thing we can think is that um, they're pastured, they do what goats do. And so there was no you know, they mowed down the foliage and so there was nothing to sustain the fire and I think it just flashed over them. They were singed, but it just flashed over them and their fence burned down and so they're like, hey, there's those grapes we've been trying to eat all these years and so <laughs> I, I found them amongst the grapes and uh, oh and for now they're living in the East Bay with some friends. So that's uh, the kind of the, the happy epilogue. If you want to read about my goats, you can uh, Google search uh, Josh Weil goats and fire and the story will come up about, <laughs> about my goats. <laughs> 